This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another trip back in time, your weekly podcast into England's past. Today, we mark the start of another mini-series as we investigate how two families fought for the crown. The House of York, with its white rose emblem, and the House of Lancaster, with its red one. In this episode, we'll look at the build-up to the Wars of the Roses, the reign of King Henry VI, and the claims to the throne that resulted in 30 years of military battles. In the second and final episode, we'll go on to examine King Richard III, including his time in the north, his castles, and how his remains came to be discovered beneath a car park. Joining us now to explore the multiple thorny issues of the Wars of the Roses is Dickon Whitewood, Curator of Collections and Interiors for English Heritage. Hi. Well, let's zoom out, Dickon, first of all, to take a broad view first. For someone unfamiliar with this turbulent period in the mid to late 1400s, what, in simple terms, were the Wars of the Roses? They were a series of conflicts in late medieval England between rival factions for the throne, those factions now you know, famous as the House of York and Lancaster. And the civil war between them lasted just over 30 years. But it would be a mistake to say that it was a single period of 30-year conflict. And because of that, historians have tended to split the wars into sort of, I guess, two or three distinct phases, sort of starting with the first battle in 1455 at St Albans, and then that period lasting until 1461, where with the accession of Edward IV following the Battle of Towton. Then a period of peace, relative peace, I suppose, followed that. But then the second period uh, was between 1469, when Henry VI briefly regained the throne, to 1471 at the Battle of Tewkesbury. And then the final period that made up the Wars of the Roses lasted from 1483, when Richard III usurped the throne, until 1487, when the final battle at Stoke took place, and then, of course, the House of Tudor reigned. Yes. Now, again, for people who don't know this period, we're talking about another I know it's hackneyed to say on the English Heritage Podcast, Game of Thrones scenario, where we've got lots of thrones, effectively, and crowns changing hands quite a lot of times. A key cast of characters, which includes Richard III, Henry VI, and Edward IV. So that's an important point as well to start off. This defines the turbulence of the period, effectively, the fact that they're, they're fighting for a crown. Yes, very much so. And I mean, it, it was right from the Tudor period, the um, significance of the Wars of the Roses re- was recognised. And of course, Shakespeare, during the Elizabethan age, wrote some of his most famous and well-known works about them, such as the plays of Henry VI and of course, Richard III, you know, that sort of Machiavellian character that he's become in our mind. These characters, these plays are all based upon the turbulent events of the Wars of the Roses and it's, it's why they're still remembered today. Yes, they've left a real cultural mark as well as a historical one. If you were at school doing history, you'd be doing history, but you might also encounter this sort of subject matter in your drama class as well. 
I think so. I mean, the characters you mentioned before, but also um, other important characters like Margaret Anjou, who was the queen to Hen- Henry VI. She was a, a larger-than-life character, similar with uh, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, known as the Kingmaker. These people sort of bestrode England, as it were, at the time. And the fact that they all came together and fought makes this a particularly poignant period of English history. Mm. So... What were the houses of Lancaster and York? Because these people didn't necessarily live in Lancaster or Lancaster, depending on where you're from, (laughs) and York, did they? They were just named after those places. Yes, exactly. The houses of York and Lancaster were two noble families, very closely related by blood, in fact, both with strong claims to the Kingdom of England. The House of Lancaster at this stage was the royal house, so Henry VI the king was also, in his own person, the Duke of Lancaster. I mean, the House of Lancaster had far older origins. I mean, it actually started in the mid-13th century, and it it quickly established itself as an extremely wealthy house, second only, at the time at least, to the royal family, with castles such as Kenilworth and Pontefract, some of the largest castles across the entirety of England. So it's a hugely wealthy and powerful family. It was founded for Edmund Crouchback, who was a younger son of Henry III. He, right from the start, was an extremely wealthy man. He had property in 632 separate locations throughout 25 counties and had a total of over 260 knight's fees. And a single knight's fee was enough to maintain a knight. So incredibly wealthy man. And that wealth passed down through his descendants, to the point where Henry, Duke of Lancaster, was so powerful as to be able to wrest control of the throne from Richard II. From there, the House of Lancaster went from strength to strength. Henry IV's son, Henry V, who probably all well know, continued the Hundred Years' War and defeated the French Agincourt to the point where he was almost crowned King of France. So that's the House of Lancaster. On the other hand, we have the House of York. Now, I mentioned before how they were closely related, and like the House of Lancaster, they were descended from Edward III. But actually, it could be argued that they had a much or a better claim to the throne even than the House of Lancaster, because they not only were descended from the fourth son, Edmund, Duke of York, hence the York name, they were also descended from the second son of Edward III, which gave them precedence, actually, over the Lancastrian family. And they, the York family, got their wealth through a whole series of inheritances, but the biggest one was from the Mortimer family, where they gained huge land holdings in the North Midlands and Welsh Marches. So from a dramatic point of view, you've got the story dating back well before we get to this period in the 1400s. It goes back generations, the tensions and the claims. Yeah, very much so. And in the 16th century, they saw the Wars of the Roses actually starting with the usurpation of Henry IV in 1399, because it was from that point where these rival claims to the throne of York and Lancaster, it's where they originated. We did just touch on some of the kings involved in the story, but who are the other key people involved in the Wars of the Roses? Well, perhaps one of the other main characters was Henry VI's queen, Margaret of Anjou. She came to exert a degree of dominance over her husband because of her strong character, her strong will, because she was extremely protective of her family's rights. After her marriage, when she was only 15, to Henry VI, she was constantly on the scene. And in fact, it was 
partially her favoritism towards um, her supporters, which contributed to the alienation of the Yorkists. Other than that, I mean, there were other nobles, the court faction of William de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, who were part of the Lancastrian faction. Opposed to that, we have other members of sort of the Neville family, sort of Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, and his son, also another Richard, Earl of Warwick, who supported the Yorkists. But these were only a few members of a, a whole tapestry of English nobility that were brought into the Wars of the Roses. There's the Beauforts as well, isn't there? That's another family. The Beauforts were related to Henry VI, closely related, and because of that, supported Henry VI very, well, the Lancastrians very strongly and were some of the prime courtiers at Henry's court. So effectively, if you aren't in the family yourself, you're in a faction which supports one or other of the families. Yes. I mean, the nature of what's known as bastard feudalism at this time, that's the way um, it tended to work, that you gravitated towards service within another noble or a more powerful noble's retinue. And of course, this only continued throughout the wars as the stakes got higher and the battles began and people started to get killed, that you, of course, quickly gained an allegiance to one or other of the factions. Yes, absolutely. We'll see how that plays out. How did these two houses then go to war? Because we're not just talking about, as you've said already, that it's not just one war. You know, it's quite sporadic over three decades. So what's the original cause? Uh, how would you pinpoint it? Well, of course, I mean, this is hotly contested by historians. I've already mentioned some of the dynastic issues in that the House of York had a very strong claim to the throne. But initially, this wasn't so important. And Richard, Duke of York, head of the house, was conspicuous in his loyalty. But of course, as the wars continued, then it, it did play a big part. One of the most important reasons was the loss of France during the Hundred Years' War, which, I mean, of course, Henry the Henry the Sixth father, rather Henry the Fifth, had almost conquered France, almost become king of France. But after his death, the French managed to claw back a lot of those victories, and this caused understandable tensions back in England as some of the nobles favoured continuing the war, others wished to end it with a peace and a treaty. So there were those tensions going on. And it, it tended to be the court faction were in favour of peace, whereas the other faction, including the Duke of York, wanted to continue the war, believing that that was the best policy and following Henry V's glorious victories. So hmm. that was a major cause of conflict, especially because Richard, Duke of York, served in France and was actually owed money for his service that was never paid. Uh, right. OK. Yeah. So I can sort of see how that might have sort of spilled over into a bit of a grudge going forward. Definitely. And, and he blamed Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, predominantly for that. A saw which was exacerbated when at one stage the Duke of Somerset actually gained York's posting in France and then proceeded to lose some of the hard-won gains that York had made. So yeah, definitely a, a difficult situation there. And it was these feuds between houses were sort of echoed around the country. So another famous one, for example, was the Percys against the Nevilles, where they were fighting over dominance within the North and it did descend into violence to the point where one of the scions of the Percy's, one of the sons of the Earl of Northumberland, actually attacked the Nevilles at a wedding. 
It sounds like something out of a, a mob film, doesn't it? It's not a bad analogy. I think there were certainly private, effectively private wars that were happening throughout England. The Percy Nevilles was one, but the Courtney's families, who were Earls of Devon, centred upon sort of Oakhampton Castle, their own fight in Devon against their rivals, the Bonvilles. And all of these conflicts, Henry VI, because he was a quite timid, shy, quite passive... Nothing like his father, effectively, Henry V. Exactly. He had all those amazing victories in France. Yes. I mean, Henry lacked the fundamental qualities of a medieval king. That is the strength to deal with his nobles and the ability to lead them in war. Both of those he didn't have. He tried to conciliate and mediate as opposed to simply telling his nobles to stop and failed to punish them when when they stepped out of line, which, of course, only led to further problems. And of course, tensions do spill over into violence at St Albans, the first battle of the Wars of the Roses, which was in 1455. So what happened for tensions to become violent? Well, in the 1450s, Richard, Duke of York, became the leader of the opposition to Henry's government. But principally, This wasn't aimed against Henry himself or at this stage his kingship, but it was more a sign of the increasingly bitter rivalry between York and Somerset to the point where York actually led an abortive sort of armed rebellion at Dartford in 1452. But this was smoothed over initially. What caused really in the run-up to St Albans was first in 1453, the last vestiges of English power in France collapsed after the Battle of Castillon, the news of which, we're told, sent Henry into one of his periods of illness, which at the time was considered to be madness. I've heard it described as he went into some sort of catatonic stupor. He couldn't speak. Well, exactly, yes. I mean, modern attempts have been made to... Interpret this? Yeah, to interpret. And it's possible that he had some form of medical schizophrenia, which, if so, you know, he was unable to really talk or communicate. We're told his head lolled and he was unable to control his sort of his movements. He didn't recognise the people around him. Even when Margaret of Anjou brought him his firstborn son, he simply didn't respond. And of course, this for a king who is in this state, it's an absolute disaster because the figurehead of government, the fount of power, has so, it's, is literally gone. It's become a vessel. Yeah, just an empty yeah. vessel. Yes. And the political situation at the time was such that York had a lot of support in his fight against the court faction and some of the corruption that was seen around Henry VI. And so he was made Lord Protector and governed well in his ability. Sort of his, sort of, he was in his position, he was head of a council and he was given almost authority to take some of the decisions that would have normally been the king's. And he didn't punish the Lancastrians too harshly. So he was was seen as ruling well. The only thing he did do, of course, was imprison his main rival, which was Somerset. But what happened next was a disaster in that Henry actually regained some of his mental faculties and then immediately turned on its head all of the beneficial works that Richard, Duke of York, had put in place. As this custodian of the country, effectively. Exactly, yes. Somerset became again sort of his right-hand man, head, effectively head of the government in Henry's name. And Somerset retaliated by calling a parliament to meet at Leicester, which was a great Lancastrian city and stronghold. But he didn't invite 
York or the Nevilles, which was clearly a provocation and wouldn't have been the first time either that something like this had happened, where the court party had used a parliament in to bring down their enemies. York and Neville and the Nevilles knew the writing was on the wall. And so rather than meekly go to that parliament and you know, potentially be accused of treason, they raised their own army, marched towards London and were met at St Albans by the Lancastrians, where despite a two-hour parley beforehand, battle did eventually commence and was a stalemate until Warwick, the kingmaker, managed to find a way round, almost the back through the back gardens, which quickly meant that the Lancastrians were routed and the leaders who were Somerset himself, but also people like Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, were killed on the field. Henry VI himself was wounded. So it was a, it was a serious, serious affair at which the majority of the Lancastrian leadership were killed or taken prisoner. If you had to then summarise, Dickon, the main result of the St Albans battle, who are the key characters who are killed and which house do they belong to? So on the Lancastrian side, of course, the losers of the battle... Somerset, or Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, is killed, along with Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. And then other Lancastrian leaders are taken prisoner, including, of course, the most important of all, the king falls into Yorkist hands. But it doesn't really resolve anything. In some ways, it actually makes the situation worse, of course, because the sons of those killed then had an even larger grudge against the Yorkists. And although there is a period of peace... In 1459, the wars really kick off in earnest, and there's a whole series of battles which go to and fro over the course. But the first real sort of knockout blow is dealt at Wakefield when Richard of York is killed. And it seems that the York fortunes have really hit rock bottom after their victory at St Albans four years previously. But Richard of York has a son. As we've discussed then, Dickon, we have a victory for York in the Battle of St Albans in 1455. And what sounds like a loss for King Henry VI, but it's actually a bit more nuanced than that, isn't it? Because York's motivations in this battle are different from what you might think. Can you explain? Yes, because at this stage... Despite the fact that this, the Wars of the Roses is later seen as a war for the crown, at this stage Richard, Duke of York, is still loyal to Henry VI. He's not looking to supplant Henry and become king himself. He's actually conspicuously loyal throughout. He says that Henry is his king, but he's simply fighting to remove the court faction, the Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Northumberland, from their positions of power within Henry's government, which the Duke of York sees as being detrimental to the kingdom. So at St Albans, the fact that these men of Somerset, Northumberland, are killed allows York to be ascendant in government, but Henry VI is still very much at liberty and remains the king. But again, Dickon, Richard Duke of York's victory is also more nuanced than we might think, because yes, King Henry VI has been re-established as the figurehead and he has been loyal to Henry but Richard Duke of York also later on has a claim to the throne despite what you were saying just before about him not really being interested in taking the throne so how does that legal claim to the throne develop? 
Yes, so in 1459, when the Wars of the Roses start again in earnest, there are a series of conflicts which end in York coming to Parliament and making a claim to the throne. Now, he'd been forced into that position because the Lancastrians had actually attainted him, which meant that he formally sort of lost his titles and lands. So York was left with no option, effectively, to go all out in his attempts against Henry VI and his government. And he does this in Westminster by walking up to the throne, laying hands on it, which is a clear sign of what his intentions were. Now, the people assembled there are shocked and actually respond to this gesture with with silence and are not ready to depose Henry VI. So a compromise is made instead where he is formally named as Henry VI's successor, despite the fact that Henry had a son of his own at this stage. The Duke of York's son, Edward, he later has a claim to the throne as well doesn't he? But something has to happen for York himself in order for Edward to move up in terms of claims. So what happens to York? Well, York, he's at Wakefield. He's staying in his castle of Sandal for the Christmas period, 1460, and is surprised there by a Lancastrian army and is killed on the battlefield. But fortunately for the Yorkist claim, Edward, Earl of March, his eldest son, was not there, was actually staying at Ludlow on the Welsh marches, and quickly raises an army of his own, wins a quick victory at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross, and then marches on London, where he's joined by the Earl of Warwick. And Warwick realises that he needs to carry on the war, and so Edward is proclaimed king in London. Because of York's earlier claim to the throne and the fact that he was named heir, this gave Edward a legal standing, actually, to claim the crown for himself, which is then swiftly done before the Yorkist army then marched north to meet the Lancastrian army at Towton. So at this stage, we almost have two kings claiming that they are the kings of England. We have Henry VI and Edward IV. So this very strange limbo period... Well, exactly. And that wasn't a situation that could last for very long. The two armies meet at Towton, which is probably the largest battle in terms of number of combatants to be fought on English soil. According to some estimates, up to 28,000 people met on the battlefield. And it's an extremely bloody battle that is eventually won by Edward IV when the Duke of Norfolk turns up late to the battle and crashes into the side of the Lancastrian army, causing it eventually to sort of fold up and the remnants to scatter across. And we know some of the horrendous consequences of this because of the graves that have been found close to the battlefield with where the injuries of some of the soldiers who fought just absolutely terrible uh, injuries um, from the weapons. Is this called the bloodiest battle of the Wars of the Roses? Um, Yes, I think so. It it has that reputation in English history uh, as the bloodiest battle of the Wars of the Roses and just indeed fought on English soil. Now, this was a Yorkist victory. We have sort of skimmed over some of the ones in between, but uh, between St Albans and Towton, that's Those are two key turning points, aren't they, I think, in our story. Now, one of the things we should mention here is as a result of this Yorkist victory at Towton, Henry VI and his wife, the Queen Margaret of Anjou, weren't captured. So where did they go? 
No, they were not present at the battlefield, and that gave them some time. Although Edward IV tried to capture them, they managed to flee to Scotland with the surviving Lancastrian lords and a few hundred men. They were welcomed by the Scottish Queen Regent, Mary of Guelders, and they quickly, through negotiation, managed to come up with a settlement whereby the Lancastrians would be given Scottish support in return for ceding Berwick to the Scots. And Berwick, of course, was right on the border, an extremely important fortress that helped the Scots have a platform into England. So they couldn't resist this temptation to support the Lancastrians. But of course, at the same time, when they did this, this gave the new Yorkist King Edward IV fantastic propaganda to use against the old Lancastrian claim. You know, he actually sent a letter to the noble or the notables of London expressing in the most sort of vehement language their actions. He called them sort of cruel and tyrannical. And the fact that Margaret of Anjou had the insatiable malice towards the people of England. So although it was a short-term boon for the Lancastrians that they gained this Scottish support, in England as a whole, it really poisoned the waters against them. How long do they stay in Scotland? They stay in Scotland for a few months, but quickly with Scottish support, they decide to launch attacks into the north of England and so lead an army against, particularly Carlisle, is attacked. Carlisle, of course, had a a strong castle which had been kept defensible because of its position on the border. And Despite this, the Scots are said to have done much damage to the town, which might even mean they took cannon against Carlisle. But fortunately for the Yorkists, at least, Lord Montague, who's a a younger brother of the Earl of Warwick, arrives with an army quite quickly and puts the Scots to flight, supposedly, at least according to one account, killing 6,000 of them. Is this the stage in the Wars of the Roses where it starts to become one of the strategies for trying to win the overall conflict? Is it's about castle seizure. Yeah, so in 1461 to 4, rather than large set-piece battles, the fighting is rather based upon sieges and quick attacks and raids and the changing of castles between the Yorks and Lancastrians because of treachery. And the reason for this is I mean, the north of England was highly militarised, particularly in Northumberland. Many of the castles were in defensible condition. But the north of England was, particularly Northumberland, was where the Percy family had a great influence. And this meant a lot of the inhabitants were still loyal to Henry VI. And this gave them a chance to build a foothold in the north of England, particularly when they could take castles. This gave them a strong base upon which to conduct their operations. I can understand now, perhaps from Edward IV's perspective, that this is a sort of gradually building and looming threat to his authority. Would I be right in saying that? Very much so, especially when Margaret of Anjou at one stage actually goes, um, travels to France in order to gain support. She eventually manages to gain the support of the King of France and she returns to the north of England with a force of around 800 French mercenaries. And there she lands near Bambra Castle, which quickly capitulates to the Lancastrians and to Margaret's army. In fact, it's done so by Sir Richard Tunstall took control of the garrison from his own brother, William. And we're told in the Paston letters 
that Richard actually planned to behead his own brother. So this shows how just how close to home, as it were, the wars were becoming and how even individual families could take different sides. So when Margaret Lanchy takes Bamburgh, but quickly also takes the castle of Dunstanborough, also Annick and Walkworth, which fall to her after short sieges. Right. So a lot of um, battles going on predominantly in the north of England by what you've been describing? Yeah, well, Edward responds to this by... Edward IV, that is, marches, he marches north with an army, which was a very large army for the time. We're told it included 31 peers, which is probably almost unheard of in this period. And at their approach, the Lancastrians are, are thrown into disarray. Margaret bolsters the garrisons of the castles she's taken, but she, herself and Henry VI flee back to Scotland. And this means that the Yorkists are now free again in the north of England to try and take back all these important castles. Warwick himself based himself at Walkworth, while the king, is, uh, Edward IV, is in Durham, actually ill at this time. And we're given, again from the Paston letters and other sort of chronicle accounts, quite some good information about how Warwick conducted this campaign. He rode out from Walkworth, we're told, on a sort of daily basis to visit these castle sites. And there were Yorkist commanders outside these castles and strict discipline was maintained on the besieging forces those trying to desert were sort of sternly punished and provisions were coming up the coast from newcastle guns were offloaded with the potential that they could be fired against the castles but also against potential scottish attack now the and the Yorkists, of course, heavily outnumbered the Lancastrians, but being in the castles, they uh, the Lancastrian forces did manage to hold out. In some cases for weeks, other cases for months, and I think you know it was a bad situation for both. I mean, of course, the Lancastrians in the castles were suffering, but even the Yorkists were told, according to the Walkworth Chronicle, laid so long in the field, sort of grieved by cold and rain, that they had almost no courage to fight. So it's, it wasn't a happy situation for either either force. Did the castles change hands again? Because we've had a lot of toing and froing by this point. Edward has had his resurgence, but do Henry's uh, factions manage to take back some castles after Edward um, makes his his attacks? Yes. Well, Edward the Fourth offered very lenient terms to the Lancastrian garrisons in the end. And in the end, they opened their doors. And some very important people, the Duke of Somerset, Sir Ralph Percy and others, are allowed actually to go free. But this conciliatory policy by Edward IV really quite quickly turns on his head because those Lancastrian men and Lancastrian garrisons, although they capitulate to Edward IV, are still Lancastrian in sympathy. And so, once again, Margaret and Henry VI come south and the garrisons quickly revert to being Lancastrian in sympathy. The garrisons of uh, Bamber and Dunstaber, uh, for example, defect. Annick falls because of the treachery of Sir Ralph Grey, who himself was formerly a Yorkist leader, but became disaffected because one of his rivals, Sir John Astley, was made keeper of the castle rather than him. And so he used a deception to gain control of the castle. So again, you've got this situation where the Lancastrians have gained power again, and Northumberland is mainly in the control of Henry VI and Margaret. And they are also busy with another Scottish army attacking Norham Castle, one of the few Northumberland castles not in their control. But 
even this situation, you know, the Yorkists are strong in the field and so manage to raise an army, relieve Norham Castle, and once again, Margaret and uh, Henry are forced into um, retreating. Now, isn't there a, a point in the story where Margaret of Anjou is actually captured? There's a very famous story regarding Margaret of Anjou. Now, she is, as we've seen, is key to Lancastrian hopes. It's really her taking control of the situation rather than Henry VI. And in 1464, however, we're told after one of the Lancastrian defeats that she was fleeing to safety with her son when she became separated from her followers. She was ambushed by robbers who seized her goods, seized the valuables on her person. And one of the leaders uh, she met in the forest with the name of Black Jack, wielding a sword, was about to perhaps kill her when she fell on her knees and said who she was and the fact that she was previously a queen and this is the the poor situation she found herself in at which point he seems to have taken pity on her and sort of carried her further into the woods and they stayed in a cave and and sheltered her for two days until her companions or followers were able to find her there's this hugely romantic story and in fact sounds like a fairy tale well Quite. I mean, it, the story Mythical. was popularised during the Victorian period, and although there are there is some medieval evidence for it, it's also not the only story where Margaret of Anjou, following a battle, was taken prisoner by the locals. So, the, it's to the point where most modern historians tend to dismiss it. And yet, even in the in the local area, which is just north of Hexham, there is actually a cave called the Queen's Cave. So it's possible that something along those lines happened. But as you say, it's probably more of a, of a mythical, romantic story that grew up around her. But presumably following this capture and her her associates being able to catch up with her after those two days, she was reunited with Henry. She was, but at this time she realised that simply the northern castles and the odd bit of Scottish support weren't going to be enough for her to recapture or regain the throne. And she takes her son and goes back to France to the relative safety of that country, where she also, she, also, she sets up actually a sort of rival court in France to Edward IV. I see. Very interesting. So I can see how there's now sort of two very distinct, even more distinct groups trying to muster support in various places. There are proxy wars going on, really, depending on the territories involved. You know, we've got France and Scotland both sort of having interests in what's going on in England and and, and intervening. So it's not just the Wars of the Roses, really, Dickon, is it? It's it's, it's, it's a pan-national war. Yeah, very much so. I mean, right at this stage, the Lancastrians are looking for support from Scotland, from France, from the Duchy of Burgundy. And equally, the Yorkists are also going out and trying to conduct treaties with these countries and do at times. But of course, all of these countries and territories and powers have their own agendas. And so it it suited them at different times to transfer their support between the Yorkists and Lancastrians. And it's a very fluid situation whereby depending on who they thought they could get the most out of they would support Margaret and Henry VI or sometimes they support Edward IV. Yes and we see that with the Duke of York's actions before his eventual death. 
And we see it, as you've described, with the castles in the north of England changing hands and the people who are in those castles being accused of treachery, etc. So, yes, as, as you say, a very fluid situation, very complicated. So, Dickon, after all that we've described, and we've tried to obviously distill it as best we can because there are several battles, we've tried to pick out the key ones. We started off with St Albans in 1455, then went to 1459 with Wakefield. Where are we in the story and in terms of dates with Margaret's capture? Well, that probably mythical story took place in 1464 after another two battles of Hedgley Moor and Hexham. These were the, really the last battles fought in this period of the Wars of the Roses. And they came about because Somerset, who I mentioned as being holed up in Bamborough Castle before, although he transferred his allegiances to Edward IV and was treated very well by Edward IV, he was nearly lynched at Northampton by the local populace and then sent to Wales. And there, I think he realised that actually his true allegiances were with Henry VI and the Lancastrians, and so defected and went to the north where he raised an army. But that rebellion never really took off, and he was defeated in 1464 and taken to Hexham, afterwards uh, beheaded. And it was these defeats in battle that really led to the end of this period of the Wars of the Roses because the heart effectively went out of the Lancastrian resistance. The castles of Bamber and Annick and so on were lost to the Yorkists for, for the final time. And Henry VI himself was forced to go on the run through uh, Lancashire, Yorkshire and the Lake District before eventually being captured in July 1465 in Lancashire before taken back by Edward IV to the Tower of London. You've mentioned this character Somerset. Now, we had a previous Somerset who died at St Albans in 1455, that first key battle of the Wars of the Roses. So we're talking about a different Somerset here, aren't we? But he he had the same grudges as his father. Exactly. The Somerset that died at St Albans was Edmund Beaufort, uh, Duke of Somerset, who was the main rival to Richard, Duke of York. And after St Albans, of course, his father was killed and he sort of almost inherited uh, his father's position as Margaret of Anjou and Henry VI's main supporter. So he was in charge of the Lancastrian army at Towton and then fled with them to Scotland and then was engaged in almost all of the trials and tribulations that the Lancastrians were in. Although he was temporarily defected to the Yorkists and Edward IV, it quickly became apparent that that wasn't his true allegiance. And so, yes, I think once he defected, he tried to raise an army, but it was never able to really gain the support that he, he um, would have needed to defeat the, the Yorkists. And so from that perspective, his defeat at Hexham and then execution was almost inevitable. Well, this brings us pretty close to the end of part one of our story of the Wars of the Roses. Just as a little teaser, where do we go from here? Because Henry is moving from place to place. His wife, Margaret of Anjou, has gone back to France. His main supporter, the Duke of Somerset, the second one, the son, is dead. It sets up an interesting next phase, doesn't it? Yes. Well, at the end of 1464, it very much looks like Edward IV you know, has got complete control of the country. And he also has his rival for the throne, Henry VI, locked up in the tower. 
But the internal politics of England, and particularly his relationship with his closest supporter, the Earl of Warwick, over the next few years didn't go smoothly, which allowed the Lancastrians and Henry VI to regain a foothold. But that will be next time. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to find out what happens next in part two of our mini-series on the Wars of the Roses, in which we explore the life of the last king of the House of York, Richard III. In the meantime, next week we'll be getting to know the women who broke new ground in archaeology. So, until then, thank you for listening, and see you next time.